everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris. It's good to be back with you again today. Uh, today I wanted to get a little bit back to basics and just talk about some Bible prophecy theology kind of things. And I wanted to go back to the topic of eminency. Uh, I have talked about this several times on the podcast just a few uh, weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago, actually. I did a show called Eminence is Absurd, and eminence, for those of you that might not know, is a term that you typically see in pre-tribulationalism. Speaking of the pre-tribulational rapture, a good definition is from Thomas Ice, who says, eminency means that the rapture could take place at any moment, while other events may take place before the rapture, no event must precede it. If prior events are required before the rapture, then the rapture could not be described as imminent. So if you've ever heard a pastor say something like, Jesus could come back before I even finish this sermon, something like that would be based on their view of imminence. Um, they would sometimes say that the next thing on the prophetic timetable is the rapture. Uh, this would, of course, be distinct from the pre-wrath view, where we see a, a number of both explicit and implied precursors to the rapture, things that must happen in the uh, prophetic timetable before the rapture happens, and then, in fact, Jesus uh, commands us to watch for. Now, the reason I want to talk more about imminence today, even though I just did a podcast a couple months ago about it, is because I think I've got some more interesting information about it. I did some research uh, the last few days in, uh, in working on the film and really think I made a, a couple a couple interesting breakthroughs on some things and basically just found my own voice and how to talk about eminence. Uh, to be honest with you, eminence has never been one of those things in the, in the Bible prophecy uh, pre-wrath ethos that I've ever spent a whole lot of time on. I mean, I've spent enough time to know how to argue against it and uh, to know that I indeed think it is utterly absurd. Uh, it's kind of like I look at Mormonism or something. I, I don't understand how you could believe it unless you like caught it from somebody that already had the disease of eminence. I don't, and in fact, I don't think that you can get eminence on your own. You have to catch it from somebody. And in, in my defense, I think that there's essentially proof that it must be caught, uh, contracted, uh, because there's no evidence of this doctrine of an any moment uh, rapture, an any moment resurrection, a resurrection preceded, not preceded by signs. There's no evidence of that in the early church. It is not until the early 1800s with the Plymouth Brethren and John Darby. And I'm not one of these guys who talks a lot about John Darby or the Plymouth Brethren, or I think it's all some big conspiracy or whatever. But it is also true that a lot of this stuff originated with Darby and the Plymouth Brethren. And eminence is one of them. You know, it's kind of an interesting story in itself, the idea that uh, the pre-tribulationalists, by the way, they know this. Uh, Dr. Larry Crutchfield, who is an expert in church history, and he is a, a pre-tribulationalist. He did uh, a paper, and, and I presume it took him an immense amount of time. I mean, he's written several books on church history and things like that. And that, that discipline is um, difficult, patristics, because you have to, you know, there's a lot of translation, a lot of stuff that's not translated into English. They're, uh, granted, it's a little easier these days with software and things like that, but it's still, there's still a lot of stuff that's just never been digitized and the rest of it. So uh, a study of what the church fathers believed on, on a certain thing isn't as simple as just doing a word study on something like that. But anyway, all that to say, what Crutchfield wanted to do was go look in the early church to find evidence that the church did believe in this any moment rapture. 
And he concludes that paper by saying, uh, he quotes uh, uh, Millard Erickson here, and he says, while there are in the writings of the early fathers seeds from which the doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture could be developed, it is difficult to find in them an unequivocal statement of the type of eminency usually believed uh, by pre-tribulationalists. And then Crutchfield continues, this in essence is the position for which we are contending. We do not say that the early fathers were pre-tribulationalists in the modern sense, only that seeds were indeed there. And then he says earlier in the paper that what we should call the early church or what they believed, we should title it imminent intertribulationalism. And this is a phrase I've talked about before, which is the idea that according to Crutchfield, a pre-tribulational scholar on the early church says that the early church, really what they believed is that the rapture would be imminent, but only after a number of signs occurred, notably the tribulation, which begins after the midpoint, the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist then begins to persecute the church, and then the church believed uh, that the rapture would be imminent. In other words, uh, he is saying that the early, the early church was more or less pre-wrath, certainly closer to pre-wrath than any other modern uh, view out there. What's interesting about this story is that Crutchfield in his paper, he interacts a little bit with John Walvoord, who John Walvoord makes some claims that, you know, early on with this, he made some sweeping claims that, you know, the early church believed in imminence or whatever. And Crutchfield was saying, hey, you know, not so fast, uh, you know, and, and actually I've got some stuff I'm going to show in the in the film where John Walvoord was quoting things saying, hey, look, this is proof that the early church believed in an imminent rapture. But what but what he was doing was he was not showing that the part of the quote in which they clearly also believed that the Antichrist was on the earth persecuting Christians. So, yeah, so essentially Crutchfield is saying, hey, you know, some of us have been a little bit overzealous in this whole, uh, you know, claiming that the early church believed this and that. Anyway, I'm kind of getting off the subject here. A couple things before I get started here. Uh, first, I wanted to thank Alan Kirshner, who has been a lot of help in this. He has uh, written or is writing a book on eminence at the moment, and uh, it's been just a, a really great resource for me to bounce ideas off of and, and really sort of figure out what, uh, what or how to refute this idea. The second thing I wanted to mention was that this is a really important doctrine, um, this idea of eminence. In fact, there are a lot of pre-tribbers who basically equate eminence with pre-tribulationalism. Here's a quote that I got from Alan uh, from John Walvoord. It says, for the most part, scriptural evidence for eminence today is equivalent to proof of the pre-tribulational viewpoint. He continues, for all practical purposes, abandonment of the pre-tribulational return of Christ is tantamount to abandonment of the hope of his eminent return. So what Walvoord is saying and what a lot of pre-tribbers agree with here is that if you could disprove eminence, then you have disproven the pre-tribulational rapture. So that's, that's why this is important, and uh, let's go ahead and get started. So the way I wanted to approach this is with their proof texts. I wanted to get as many proof texts as I possibly could. These are the texts that, you know, solid pre-tribulationalists would uh, offer up as, as proof of an imminent rapture. So I went around and I just looked for everything I could find on the internet, on papers and whatever, and just sort of put them all in one file. And then I quickly found that they were really easy to group into certain categories. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at these proof texts in, in what I call different categories. So for example, the first group we're going to look at is what I call waiting for verses. These are verses like in Titus 2.13, which say, waiting for our blessed hope, 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it says, waiting for our blessed hope. So it just basically says, waiting for the rapture, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or Philippians 3.20, which says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, and then 1 Corinthians 1.7, so that you are not lacking in any, in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that one's pretty simple. The revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ is probably the rapture, and they are to wait for it. So they're to wait for the rapture. So that's what these verses are basically saying. There's not saying anything more than to wait for the rapture. And it's interesting looking into arguments of pre-tribulationalists about why we're supposed to understand this idea of waiting for the rapture, meaning imminence, that something could happen at any moment with no prophetic signs preceding it, all this baggage that they, that they force into this word wait for. And very few of them even attempt to, I mean, it's very rare to find some pre-tribulationalist that feels like they need to explain that to somebody. This is just something that you believe, like Mormonism, uh, once you are told that wait for means imminence, you're just supposed to, to believe it. But of the few that have been forced to say why we're supposed to believe that wait for means imminence, um, they don't make claims about the Greek. I mean, they might you know, throw in a Greek word there, here and there, but they're not saying that the word wait for means eminence. Um, it certainly doesn't mean eminence. It just means what it kind of means in English. It means to wait for something. But what they will say is that there's a connotation of eagerly waiting for something. And they would say, if you eagerly wait for something, then it must be able to happen at any moment. It's not entirely, uh, it doesn't logically follow, but that's basically their argument. Um, but the idea is, of course, absurd. I mean, I can eagerly wait for all kinds of things and not have them be imminent. I can eagerly await um, next Christmas, but it doesn't mean that it's imminent. I can eagerly await getting out of uh, quarantine and going to, um, I don't know, a restaurant or something, but it doesn't mean that it's going to happen at any moment. Um, I can eagerly await the example that Alan always gives is a wedding um, you can eagerly anticipate the wedding. It's going to be awesome when you're when you're married, but it doesn't mean that there are no prophetic or uh, no events of any kind that need to that don't need to precede it. That it will happen at any moment. Of course, eagerly awaiting something has no connection to imminency whatsoever. And without any kind of grammatical or or language reason for this meaning imminence, it just I mean it just doesn't. Uh, one way to kind of look at this is. Uh, Peter, 2 Peter 3, 13, he says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for, he uses a Greek word, proska, I can't pronounce any Greek words. He's waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells in 2 Peter 3, 13. So Peter says that we should wait for the new heavens and new earth. And, you know, even pre-tribulationalists would agree that there are lots of signs and prophetic events, even in their system, that must take place before the new heavens and new earth. We'll kind of look at what Peter is probably referring to, the attitude that he's, he's looking for uh, when he's saying that we should wait for the new heavens and, and the new earth later on, because it does actually come back into play and it's pretty, uh, pretty prominent. But all I really want to mention here is that the same waiting for idea Peter is using of something that clearly is not imminent and is also eschatological. 
and and seemingly the exact same way that he's using these other or that the people are using these other verses to wait for and to eagerly expect the return of Christ. And Peter's saying we should wait for and eagerly expect the new heavens and the new earth. So, so even what they need you to do is believe that the context demands this to be imminent, because they're certainly not making claims of technical reasons for this to be imminent. But this verse in 2 Peter shows that even the context argument breaks down quite quickly. There's no way to uh, falsify this idea, and that's really the problem. Alan has pointed out time and time again with all these imminent verses, it keeps coming down to how could you prove it? Can you prove that wait for means imminence without any evidence? Uh, And so that's essentially what they're wanting everybody to believe. This next category for uh, imminence proof text is one that I really feel like I made, uh, you know, a minor breakthrough in, at least as far as I was concerned. I'm sure other people may have found this and know this like the back of their hand, but for me, it was uh, was new and uh, somewhat of a breakthrough. I call this category of proof text, be good because Jesus is returning. And it's probably the largest group of pre-tribulational proof text for eminence. Uh, it consists of verses like 2, uh, 2 Timothy 4.8, which says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Uh, the idea here is that when the rapture happens, I'm going to be rewarded because I did good. Another example would be in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So he's saying that let's uh, do some good works because the day is drawing near. So good works because of the rapture. Okay. Another example is 1 John 2, 28, which says, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So we want to do good works, abide in him so that uh, we won't shrink away at his coming. So do good works because of the rapture. First John uh, 3, 2 through 3 says, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Okay, so this is a little more roundabout, but uh, when he appears is obviously the rapture, and it's saying that everyone thus hopes in him purifies himself. So, do good because of the rapture. There are more verses like this, but basically they all say the same thing. Christians should strive to live moral lives, to love good works, as Hebrews puts it, Uh, and that they should do so in light of the fact or because Jesus is returning uh, in the rapture. So what they would argue here, they would say that these verses argue for eminence because these New Testament writers are telling people to be morally blameless because of Jesus's return, meaning that his return must be able to happen at any moment without signs, with no prophetic precursors. In other words, Uh, they were telling people that they should keep doing good because if they don't, they could get caught not doing good or worse, get caught doing something bad because Jesus could return at any moment and surprise them. So the first thing that I would want you to notice is that none of these verses say why we should do good works because of the rapture. They all say something, basically, do good works, continue to do good works because that day is approaching. They tell us to do good works because that day is approaching, but they don't 
explain why. They don't, they, they don't tell us uh, why us doing good works has anything to do with the approaching day. So what pre-trippers have done is they have supplied a reason for us. They've supplied uh, something that we can fit into the gaps of these verses, which says, um, do good works because if you don't, he's going to come back suddenly when you least expect it and then surprise you uh, doing something bad. So make sure that you're always doing good. I don't mean to make that sound absurd. It's not necessarily an absurd guess, uh, but it is a guess. That's what I want to point out here, is that we don't have enough information in any of these verses that they have supplied. And I don't think that they would even argue with that. They're giving us the the interpretation of this. But, but again, it comes back to what Alan always says. We'll, we'll prove that that's what they really meant, that they meant to say that the reason is because he could come back at any moment. Despite that shaky premise, pre-tribbers have taken this concept to the bank. They've, they've developed a literal doctrine of sanctification around this idea, which is the fear of being caught in the act of sinning from an imminent returning uh, Christ. It's that idea that keeps Christians on the straight and narrow path. And uh, admittedly, I think this is more in the older generation of pre-tribbers. I don't feel like this is a, a younger generation thing. I, I always have this idea in my mind that maybe it was in like the late great planet Earth or something that Hal Lindsey made a really big deal about this or something. I don't know what it was, but those the older generation are like, you know, pounding the pulpit about this. John MacArthur kind of sums it up here. He says, the hope of Christ's imminent return is therefore the hinge on which a proper understanding of sanctification turns. You know, it's funny that John MacArthur, I believe, could give a sermon on sanctification that has nothing to do with an imminent return of the rapture, because there is a lot of good doctrine about sanctification that I know John MacArthur believes. And, but yet here, when he's preaching about imminence, all of a sudden it's the hinge on which a proper understanding of sanctification turns. And uh, again, I have to go back to Alan with this. He, he said something one time that I was like, oh yeah, and I think I mentioned this in the previous podcast, that if you really needed the, the threat hanging over your head of being caught at any moment, and that's the thing that keeps you on the straight and narrow. If that's really what you need in your life, I'm not, I don't think that's a good place to be, by the way. But if that's where you are, it's okay. You have your imminent death hanging over your head. You could die at any moment. And statistically, it's a lot more probable that you're going to die than you're going to be raptured before you die. In other words, very few amount of people statistically are going to be raptured before they die, but a lot of people are going to die before that. And hey, you know, aneurysms, crocodiles, whatever it's going to be, car wrecks, um, you, you really could die today. So if you need that in order to keep on the straight and narrow, you'll be face to face with Jesus uh, to be absent from the body is present with the Lord and all that. So if that's what you require, you got it. You do not need an imminent rapture because you already have your imminent death. But this is where I was kind of stumped um, because I was thinking, well, I know that this isn't saying necessarily that uh, we should do good works because of an imminent return of Christ. It's just saying that we should do good works in light of the rapture. And I was trying to think theologically, what does it mean? And why should we do good works because of the rapture? What's the tie in there? And I thought about this for a while, and actually uh, my wife helped me to sort of think it through. Uh, and it's kind of a journey. So we're going to start in 2 Peter 3, where he says, starting in verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? 
waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So there's a lot of interesting things going on here, but first of all, we should recognize that Peter is doing the same thing that we saw in those other verses. He's telling Christians that they should live godly lives in light of some eschatological event, but here he's saying the new heavens and the new earth, which as we looked at earlier, that's event that, an event that definitely has precursors. So that alone seems to be a refutation of the imminent idea, if indeed the same sentiment here that Peter is, is saying, that we should live godly lives in light of the new heavens and the new earth, then certainly the idea that we should live godly lives because something unexpected could happen. There's going to be tons of signs before the new heavens and the new earth, including an entire 70th week of Daniel. So anyway, but that's not the point. What we can derive from this is that Peter is saying that what, he, what the idea is, is actually eternal life. That's why he's using the concept of the new heavens and new earth here. It's clear from the context, but that also makes sense from the verses that we've already seen, right? They're just referring to the rapture, live godly lives in light of the rapture. All of those verses are talking about the rapture. And of course, what is the rapture except the day that we start our eternal life? Okay, but so we're going to look more into this, but another thing I want to, to point out here is that he ends this by saying... Um, that, hey, just like our brother Paul wrote to you, according to, according to the wisdom given to him. So let's first turn to the, almost certainly, the, the, the letters that uh, Peter was referring to, starting with Galatians 6, because Paul talks a lot about this issue. Uh, he says, For one who sows to his own flesh will from the, uh, the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. He just got done saying what reap is, reap eternal life, if we do not give up. So Galatians 6, 8 through 9 uh, shows us the exact same thing here, but there it's very clear. It's talking about eternal life. No mentioning of the rapture. Let us not grow weary of doing good. Do good. Uh, don't stop doing good in light of reaping eternal life. Okay, Paul says in Romans 2.6, something very similar, where he says, He, that is God, will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing, patience in well-doing, seek the glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So those who are patient in well-doing, doing good works, patient in doing good works, uh, seek uh, and those who seek honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So there it is. Eternal life is the key to these verses about uh, doing good works. Do good works in light of not just the rapture. That's too myopic. Do good works in light of what the rapture is, what the rapture represents, which is eternal life. I know some of you are probably thinking, hey, this is getting a little too legalistic, Chris. Are you telling us that we should do good works in order to obtain eternal life? Well, in the next verse that we're going to look at, it not only clears that up, but it also shows the answer to the question that we originally asked, which was, why uh, do good works have anything to do 
with the rapture, or, or as we've come to find out, why do doing good works have anything whatsoever to do with eternal life? Why should we do good works in light of eternal life? I think the answer is found in 1 Corinthians 15, a passage that is famous for a lot of reasons. In one sense, it's a classic rapture passage. Uh, it contains verses like, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet which is obviously a reference to the rapture, but the greater context is all about the astounding, immaculate gift of eternal life. Uh, quote, when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality. It's the same passage where we get uh, words like, oh, death, where is your sting? So, so let's look at Paul in context. Right at the end of this, he's just got done uh, talking about the rapture, talking about how awesome it is that we're going to have eternal life, death, where is your sting, all that, and then therefore we have a loaded therefore. Therefore, in light of the rapture, in light of eternal life, therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So we've got all the elements in this passage, and he concludes and says that we should do good works in light of the rapture because we know that our labor is not in vain. So what does he mean by that? And I'm, gonna, I'm going to suggest that he means that we do good works because we are promised eternal life, not in order to attain it. And I think that you can see that by following uh, his thread in this very chapter, because this chapter is famous for another reason. It's also the famous gospel uh, chapter. It starts off, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So that's kind of Paul's whole point here, but really he probably wrote this letter because there was con some confusion about whether or not the resurrection was even real. We know that was sort of a, a, a doctrinal fight in those days. Jesus uh, shows us that, Paul shows us that. But the reason that we know the Corinthians probably were dealing with this too is because uh, of the next few verses, which say, uh, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, this is a few verses later, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So this idea of their preaching being in vain and their faith being vain and still being in their sins if the resurrection isn't real is important because that's how he concludes that passage that we read earlier, which says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So he concludes this whole chapter by saying, it's not in vain. Eternal life is real. This is all real, guys. We are going to live forever. Isn't that amazing? Oh, death, where is your sting? So let's just quickly look back at some of these verses we saw at the beginning. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all those who have loved his appearing. So I hope that in light of what we just looked at, you can understand easily what's being referred to there. It's this uh, glorious reveling in the fact that eternal life exists. I won't deny that there is a sense that the, the, the they're saying do good works in light of that, uh, but it also is consistent with the gospel message that we all know that it's the Holy Spirit empowering us to want to do good. It's in light of what Christ has done for us that we 
want to do good works is our spiritual service. Uh, and it's certainly not implied anywhere in the text that this has anything to do with eminence. So I think it helps to know what probably the real doctrine is, because then you look at all these verses a completely different way, in a new light, in a truer light, I hope. Anyway, I'm sort of running out of time, so let's move on to the next group of proof texts, and this is one is the easiest to dismiss. Um, and what's interesting is that 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, which save things like, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. These have nothing to do with imminence. These have everything to do with not being destined for the wrath of God, which of course, pre-wrathers and really a lot of people would believe. But I have to include these because I have yet to see a list of verses that are supposed to prove imminence that don't include these verses. It's like they just, I just recently read a major theological paper and it include out of the six verses they offered up in defense of eminence, two of them were these, which have literally nothing to do with eminence. At best, they are a refutation against post-tribulational, some post-tribulationalists. In uh, this, just as we've talked about this many times, a lot of pre-tribulationalists don't have a lot of, of content, uh, don't have a lot of truth on their side. So they got to take what they can get. Uh, and in this case, they are using verses that only say, and in, in, in I've read their argumentation, I, you know, in that paper I mentioned, I read through, why are, are they claiming somehow these things that say, uh, deliver us from the wrath to come? Does that have anything to do with an any moment, sudden? And, and no, the, their argumentation is that this proves that uh, we will be kept out of the uh, wrath of God. And then it's like, well, so you put this in a paper about eminence, why? The next one is really interesting, and it's also really bad, and I call it the rapture is a good thing proof text, and it comes from John 14, 1 through 4, and it is really bad. The argument is just one of the worst I've ever heard. I've told you I'm not really big on the ins and outs of all the various eminence arguments, uh, so when I saw this was the first one mentioned in that paper that I read, I was like, uh, hey, Alan, is this is this like a new thing that they're doing? Because this is really bad. And he was like, no, this is, this is something they're pretty proud of. So um, here it is, John 14, one through four. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may also, or you may be also, and, and you know the way to where I am going. And that last part, and you know the way to where I'm going, kind of connects to a few verses before where it says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. So that's why Jesus kind of concludes, and you know the way to where I'm going. So, uh, so okay, so the argument here is all centered around verse one of chapter 14, which says, let not your hearts be troubled. The argument is that number one, this verse is talking about the rapture, that when it says, I will come again and take you to myself, that that's talking about the rapture. I'm, I'm not kidding that most of this argument in this paper was like trying to prove that this was about the rapture, which I'm pretty sure everybody knows is about the rapture. But again, they're hurting for content. Uh, so then, it, then here comes the home run, right? Verse one, let not your hearts be troubled. What the argument is, and I read it several times, is that because it says, let not your hearts be troubled, then the rapture must be imminent it, it, because 
if it wasn't imminent, then there would be persecution and the Antichrist or whatever before the rapture. So when it says, let not your hearts be troubled, clearly he means, he wouldn't have said, don't be troubled if what he really meant is you're going to get persecuted before the rapture. So by him saying, let not your hearts be troubled, it is proof that the rapture is signless, it occurs imminently, uh, that it will happen any moment, and most importantly, will happen well before any persecution or antichrist or any of that business, which is on its face absurd. This verse is not even in the ballpark of talking about those subjects. It just says, let not your hearts be troubled. Why? Because they were troubled earlier saying, where are you going? I want to be able to follow you. That's why they were troubled. This has nothing to do with what signs are going to precede his rapture and when it will take place in relationship to the Antichrist or whatever. It's, it's not even in the same ballpark. And what makes it even worse is that it's like totally tone deaf with regard to actual persecution. The people that he's talking to, the disciples, almost all of those guys were tortured to death for Christ. Okay, so they are going to get raptured one of these days. And they, their bodies, you know, had been tortured to death. Okay, um, certainly the early church was was burned alive and tortured for their faith for and millions and millions of Christians after that over the 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 the, the millennia. And Christians today are being tortured and killed for their faith. So, what is this? Let not your hearts be troubled about. Is that just for that the small generation that's going to be you know raptured? Those guys, for some reason, are singled out and say, hey, you guys are really special. I'm going to make sure you don't get any pain, no persecution, none of that funny business or whatever. Let not your hearts be troubled because everybody else's hearts were troubled by your own definition of the word troubled in this case. That means you're going to be raptured, right? You're, you're you know, pristine, ha <laughs> raptured with no trouble right next to a guy who was burned alive for uh, Christ. So this... This is not even a well-thought-out doctrine, and it certainly doesn't deserve to be on the top of anybody's list in trying to prove imminence. There is one other group. I may circle back to that, but it's it's a lot like the others. I call it a nearness proof text. There are a lot of verses that talk about uh, how Christ's return is near, and um, the idea, or at hand, they might even say. Sometimes they translate at hand is near, but it's basically the same thing. Again, there's no... There's no uh, linguistic reason. You could do a word study of the word near. It just means near. It doesn't mean imminent. So we need to determine from the context, does near mean imminent or does it just mean near? Um, and it does say that a lot. And I'll have to say, you know, in some cases, it's very obvious. James 5, 7 uh, through 9 is a really good example of this because, well, let's just read it. It says, but uh, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and latter rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And I think this is one of these that is not uh, often used much by pre-tribbers anymore because it is so clearly uh, uh, easily debunked. And the reason is because James' imagery, including the words for near and standing at the door, all come from Matthew 24 when Jesus is teaching about the fig tree parable. Um, 
And the reason this is important is because the context is exactly the same. In the, in the fig tree parable, Jesus is saying, look, you know how, you know that my return will be near uh, in the same way that you know that summer is near when you see the leaves on the fig tree uh, turn. In the same way, you're going to know that I am near even at the door, using the same word that James used to say the same thing, which is that you are to watch for signs of his return. James says that the, the return of the Lord is going to be like uh, a farmer waiting for the harvest of his field, right? He needs the early and the latter rain. So there are precursors. There are things that need to happen before a harvest, and that is the early and latter rains. As James is saying to be patient for it. So this is this is just not one of those things that they'll typically use if they're thinking it through, because the logical outgrowth of this is the opposite of imminence. It is that there are signs that must happen uh, before the coming of the Lord. Um, I I know I'm I'm kind of running out of steam here, so I just want to jump down to some of the kind of, uh, I guess you'd call them emotional arguments or, or platitudes that people will say. And I already dealt with this in the previous podcast, but, uh, you know, it's stuff like, you don't really have a blessed hope. Your blessed hope is in uh, uh, the Antichrist, uh, not Christ, or uh, you think that Christ is going to beat up his bride before the rapture. And like I said, you know, you could point out the disciples, you could point out the millions of Christians that were killed uh, for their faith, faith that the hope, as we saw earlier, is not in a painless rapture. The hope is in eternal life, regardless of what may come before it, regardless of if extreme torture and death come before it. My hope is still in Christ, and my hope is in that eternal life and his return, not in anything to do with my uh, how, how, how much I get hurt before the rapture, because really that's that's what they're saying. If they're saying my, my blessed hope is tainted because I believe that there'll be a persecution, that's not any kind of blessed hope. Then by definition, their blessed hope is in some sort of painless exodus from earth, despite all their brethren not getting that uh, luxury. So, all right, I will uh, see you guys next time. Thanks for tuning in. Go to BibleProphecyTalk.com to subscribe to the podcast and all that good stuff. Talk to you later.